I'd like to uh, welcome to the podcast today, Ron Kitchens. Ron is the senior partner and chief executive officer of Southwest Michigan First. I'm going to bumble that like five or six times. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> um, an economic consulting firm, which has grown compound, compounded revenue at 20% annually during his 14 years as chief executive officer. In addition, Ron leads Consultant Connect and is the publisher of 269 Magazine. Ron is the founder of the leadership conference Catalyst University and the co-founder of Next, an imitation-only leader symposium for global economic development leaders. People always give me all these big words. <laughs> sorry. You know, no, it's totally fine. That, that executive his, word threw you off. I'm I know, sorry. it's all these executive words. Ron and his team, teams have been extensive extensively featured in over a hundred national and international media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, CBS, NBC, Fox, USA Today, Forbes, Fortune, The Economist, and National Public Radio. Ron is author and co-author of three books, including the bestseller, Community Capitalism, and speaks globally on leadership, creating thriving, engaged, multi-generational teams and entrepreneurial cultures. Welcome to the podcast. So Thanks. happy to have awesome. you. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. I'm so excited to have you. So my question, my first question is always the same um, because it always comes back. So what is your, what was your first job? Uh, my first job was a stable hand in a horse stable. I worked um, 20 hours a week. Uh, I think I was 13 and I paid $1.50 an hour. Wow. I it's actually pretty good money at the time, and I shoveled out stables, washed horses, and did kind of general maintenance, and would occasionally ride, but these were Tennessee walking horses, and they were miserable to ride. So <laughs> I, uh, I shoveled manure, and maybe that's what set me up on a career to be an executive. There you go. <laughs> See, it always, I always say it, it comes back around somehow, right? Yeah, exactly. Did it for me. Um, so how did you get started in economic development? Uh, so I'm, I grew up um, in abject poverty, grew up just about as poor as you can grow up in America. And um, I, uh, I couldn't afford to go to college full time. So I had a great mentor who um, helped me kind of see my future. Actually, it was kind of miserable. He, uh, he I didn't really know the guy very well. Um, I knew his sons better and he set me down one day. It was uh, just before I was 19 or just after I turned 19 and said, let me tell you your future. Your, I had intended to go play college football. I got injured the first week of practice and um, there was no scholarship. There was going to be no college football. And so I was kind of bumbling through school and he said, let me tell you your future. You're going to, your car's going to break down. You're going to get a loan to buy new tires or fix your car, go buy a new car. You're going to then start taking fewer classes in school because you got to work more to pay off your loan. And, um, and then you're going to take a break from school for a semester. You're going to get some local girl pregnant. You're going to get married. And 10 years from now, you're going to be the most popular guy on the assembly line at the fan factory on the edge of town. Holy That's God. your future. And I, uh, I remember being punched. I felt like I was punched in the gut, but there wasn't a single thing he said that I thought he was wrong about. 
So he said, but I'll help you. So put together, he actually put together a group of mentors, older men who were very successful in different industries and, and they poured into me. And so I ended up owning a small chain of convenience stores that oh, wow. one of them had and financed for me to take over and ended up with lots of employees and I'm 20 years old and I have an epiphany that I'm lonely because I'm working a hundred hours a week and I realized none of my friends who went to college can come home. There are no jobs. And I knew the big thing growing up that everybody had that my family didn't have was a job. My father died when I was four. My mom's, neither of my parents finished the eighth grade. And so I knew a job was the most important thing, but I had no idea how, other than me creating jobs, I had no idea how communities and areas created jobs. So I look in the, our local weekly newspaper and it says there's a city council race and think, well, government, city can help create jobs. So I march myself down, I'm 20 years old, I go to a local cafe at um, lunchtime with my form. You had to have 20 signatures to get on the ballot. I walked around and harassed people to sign my form to get me on the ballot. I file and, um, and lo and behold, I end up winning. I end up winning three terms. Now they were landslide wins because come to find out nobody really cared. So nobody ever ran against me. It was just you. <laughs> but I discovered that government could do things to help with jobs, but it took business and philanthropy to do it together. And, uh, and so I began creating this kind of model that we now call community capitalism about bringing people together, bringing together philanthropy, with their ability to do things charitably and care about people, business with their ability to actually create jobs and impact that, and government to create an environment where um, good jobs can be created. And so I uh, literally, um, let's kind of fast forward a few years after that, I was paying off a loan um, with one of my banker mentors uh, on an expansion that we had done. And, and I was telling him about all the new people I was going to get to hire mm -hmm. and how excited I was. And he said, you know, you care more about hiring people than you do about uh, making a profit. And I said, finally, you get me. <laughs> he said, yeah, I didn't mean that as a compliment. We have to figure out something different for your life. You're too talented, but you're going to push boundaries and not think enough about the profit side and the economy is going to go south and you're going to put all those people at risk. And so uh, that's when I kind of decided he's right. And I want to spend my life working to create great companies that can create amazing jobs to in the end, uh, reinforce my belief that the greatest force for change is a job. I love it. That is so yeah. amazing. So just at 20, you're like, well, I'm just going to get on the ballot. That is amazing. Yep. Well, and the funny thing was, they no, it didn't dawn on anybody that you can't actually run for office until you're 21 in the state oh. of Virginia. <laughs> but I turned 21 between the filing date and the election date. And so a judge said, well, nobody else wanted it anyway. So just let, it's okay. He can have this. Just let him have it. <laughs> yeah, nobody wanted it. What else are you going to do?
That is so, so awesome. Yeah. So Southwest Michigan First focuses on the economic development of Kalamazoo. Is that right? Yeah, so really the region, the seven counties region, okay. started to be a traditional economic development corporation. You get up every day, you worry about geographic boundaries. Um, and But what we soon realized after my arrival was that um, where the outcome and the goals were important, mm-hmm. how we were going to do it was going to be different. So, um, you know, we focus our charitable mission on those seven counties, but we now operate um, all over North America. We have um, just over 300 clients now uh, that are other local economic development groups, states, regions, a couple of countries are clients where we're helping them do the same things. Um, we kind of operate in this model that we call the teaching hospital version of an economic development corporation. If you are really, really, really sick and you have something weird, um, you're going to end up going to a teaching hospital because they're the ones pushing the boundaries. They're trying different things, but they're also the ones sharing it with everybody else in the world so they can implement that. So we've chosen to be that, which means we're going to make mistakes more often and faster than our peers. But when we, but we're going to share our mistakes so they don't do it but we're also um, gonna share our success. And by doing that, we elevate our own region, but then we um, also are constantly challenging and changing our best. So, you know, we don't have to worry about that kind of irrelevancy that comes with the speed of change. That's very interesting. So I guess one of my questions for you is, um, what are the key building blocks to catapulting a community into sustainable growth? So I think that goes back to the community capitalism model of you have to have first companies that are willing to invest and grow to create uh, jobs and wealth. That's the only place it comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, Assuming you're not, you know, striking oil, but even then, you know, when you strike oil, you can employ a few people short term, but then the product leaves. So it doesn't create any real wealth if you don't have businesses to to capitalize on that. You have to have government um, models that allow um, businesses to thrive, that protect the environment, and do so um, with stability. So so the market understands uh, where things are going and can invest around that. Mm -hmm. And then you're always going to have those that are left behind, those that, that have have pasts have been bruised. So you've got to have the philanthropic, the social sector to pick up those folks to make sure they're getting elevated, whether that's uh, different ways of doing education, whether it's making sure that, um, that you know, people are being fed who can't take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. But that same philanthropic um, groups also have to take responsibility for enhancing the community and in different places that manifests itself differently some places it's you know uh, symphony orchestras others it's walking and hike and bike trails but you've got to also create an environment where people want to be there and so if you can do those things together those are the places that thrive where one of those things is off you may be able to succeed but you will never thrive 
And if you have two of them are off, you don't have a prayer. It just, it, it, you just can't, uh, you can't make it. You won't, you won't succeed. That's very interesting. I, I knew you had a formula for me, so it's very interesting. Yeah, well, um, you know, we could do, you know, when you're speaking to an accountant, you've always <laughs> got to have the data. Yeah, I knew there was, I knew there was building blocks and, you know, yeah. things. It's because it's easier for me to visualize when there's yeah. like pillars, right? That's um, right. And it's very interesting to me that the social is super important, that we're, you know, everybody is socially being taken care of. And then also, also you have to create a space that people want to actually live in. I mean, you can only bring so many people in based on jobs, but they're not going to stay there if it's not a good place to live. Absolutely. You know, my, uh, my daughter fully intended when she graduated from college to, um, to go to Austin. So she works in advertising Mm -hmm. and went to school at SMU in Dallas. So Austin was the place to go till she spent a summer working there. And, um, and the levels of disengagement between the social sectors and the business sector um, was overwhelming and depressing for her where, mm-hmm. you know, she would get up, you know, every day and was in the heart of Austin in a very expensive apartment complex, walk out on the street and have to step over dozens of homeless men mm-hmm. who, um, who frankly were mostly young men who had come to Austin with a dream and ended up with an addiction and the community wasn't doing anything about it. And yeah, we have a problem like, in Denver now. Yeah, and she's like, I, that's not where I want to be. I don't want to be someplace where you just, where there's two worlds and one ignores the other because eventually you won't be able to ignore it. And, uh, and so you've got to make sure you have those both safety nets as well as um, creating environments that are incredible. I love it. That makes so much sense. Um, so tell us about Catalyst University and, um, who you guys, who you guys are helping with that. So, um, I, I got really lucky a few years ago. I had a dinner with Jim Collins, good to great Jim Collins. So I, uh, sitting next to him and I said, you know, you've written a book about what it takes for companies to be great. You've studied that. You wrote a, a small monogram about what it takes for not-for-profits to be great. Mm-hmm. But what does it take for communities to be great? And I thought for a minute, and he said, oh, it's actually easy. So if you focus on business, you can be profitable, but you'll never just, you'll never be great. Mm-hmm. To be great, you have to focus, uh, everyone has to thrive and reach the same levels of success. And that's for-profit, not-for-profit, faith-based, local government and education. Mm-hmm. They all have to be at the same level of great, of amazing. Otherwise, the community will never be successful. And, uh, and as we talked, it, you know, the analogy came to me that it, you know, there's this old saying that high tide lifts all boats or rising tide lifts all boats. But if you know anything about that, if it only works if the ropes on, that are holding the boat to the dock allow the, the boat to rise. Mm-hmm. So if you, in our case, had five ropes tied to that boat and four of them uh, were allowed to rise, but one was too tight, one didn't have capacity, then the corner of the boat would get pulled down under the water and it would eventually sink the entire boat. 
That's such a and, good analogy. And so if you think of it that way, it's all in all of our enlightened self-interest to make sure that, you know, if you're in business, to make sure that your church is thriving and has capacity to be great. If you're in local education, you want to make sure that if you're successful, the business is successful. Otherwise, the best families will have to leave and your success will go down because you'll lose their investment in their kids. And so it, it, it just focusing on that. So I've been to a lot of conferences. I've spoken at a lot of conferences, but I never was at one that focused on those five sectors. So we built Catalyst University around this idea that um, where business is critical to our success because they have the money to be sponsors and buy lots of tickets. We have to get the others in the room. So we're lifting all leaders. They're hearing the same messages. They're being inspired by the same people. They're at lunch sitting next to each other, realizing that um, we're all the same. We're just addressing different problems. And so it grew from nine years ago, we were at 180 people and um, hoping that we didn't lose money to now we're at 3,000 people and still hoping we don't lose money. <laughs> but, it, um, but it's become this kind of masterclass on um, community development. And this year for the first time, we actually moved from a winter conference to a summer conference mm -hmm. because um, we have to get more teachers and more students involved. And so um, this year we've set up a, a separate half day in addition to for um, high school students. Oh, that's cool. And, and to mix them, we have eight different school districts represented, which for us was really important because we've got to show kids that Friday night football is important, but it's irrelevant two years after you graduate from school. It's about relationships and sticking in the community and seeing people for who they are. So we've brought in incredible speakers for them. We've got the university president speaking to them, going to get his picture taken with everybody who wants a picture. <laughs> uh, we have a financial um, advisor coming in to talk about how you really fund your education and don't buy into this myth that you've got to have, you know, the, a brand new car and run up tons of debt. You know, the average kid doesn't do that. These things you see on the news, $100,000 of undergraduate debt, you shouldn't have gone to that school. Mm -hmm. or you should have yeah, done things cheaper, but we've got to change this um, because when we look at great communities, great communities 10 years from now will be measured by the number of people they have in that community under the age of 40. And so we've got to set up ourselves to be that place that people come and they thrive and they stay and then their friends want to come here. And so that the best way to do that is make sure that uh, high school kids go to college or some kind of education, mm -hmm. they graduate and they start their lives um, in a way they can be successful. And where they are. 
Absolutely. stay where they are, not yep. just leave the small town and then the yeah. small town dies. Or have a choice. In a lot of cases, they just don't have a choice now. And we want to make sure they have a choice of where they want to be. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at the cost of living in Denver, and I'm like, the kids are never, they are never going to be able to move out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, they're, they're never moving out. Like, I'm looking at my husband, like, where are they going to live? Yeah. Like, wh- how are, how? Yeah. Because cost of living has gone up so high here. Uh, um, they're never going to, like, how are they going to spend $1,700 on a one bedroom apartment? Like, yeah, we couldn't do that. That's our mortgage. <laughs> exactly. And well, I encourage you, if you move to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and your kids go to Kalamazoo Public Schools, we pay for their four years of college. There you go. I like it. We have the Kalamazoo Promise that guarantees every kid who graduates from Kalamazoo um, Public Schools four years of college. Wow, that's Uh, 100% privately funded. So, wow. And, uh, and the apartments are much cheaper. Yeah, right? I know. I was looking at the cost of living in Kalamazoo, but then I'm like, but it's really cold up there. Yeah. Well, you live in Denver. It's not much cold. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're, uh, we're actually just off, you know, offhand. We're actually looking at potentially like moving to Tennessee or, you know, we're looking at Chattanooga. We're looking at places that are growing and they have a huge population of under 40 over there. Yep. Chattanooga right now. Chattanooga and Nashville are Mm -hmm. on fire. Yeah. And the cost of living is so much less than it is here. Um, And my husband's a mechanical engineer um, and they have a ton of mechanical engineer jobs that pay more than Denver. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, what is happening? You know, I think the whole world is reshuffling around this idea that places where you can build your life are going to be the most important thing. It's no mm-hmm. longer about being where your family is or where mm-hmm. you went to school. Yeah. Is you see yourself thriving. Yeah. And, um, and that goes back to then communities have to make sure everybody is thriving. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you can get a great job if the community stinks. You know, if you can't find, you know, if you're into hike and bike trails and they don't have them, you're not going to move there. It doesn't matter what it pays. We absolutely need bike trails. <laughs> Yeah. Otherwise you won't come with me. My husband would be like, nope, sorry. See, and that's, so that's one of those things that, you know, and the funny thing is I've been in economic community world a long time. You have. Nobody has ever asked me about a symphony. Mm -hmm. Nearly every company we deal with asks about hike and bike trails. It's just, I don't know where that disconnection came from, but Mm -hmm. You know, when we coach community leaders, elected officials, it's focus on outdoor recreation, focus on getting people interactive. They're not interested in going to the mall. That isn't going to be their social life. Their mm-hmm. social life is going to be hike and bike trails connected to ice cream shops and, and microbreweries. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> totally in. If you can do that, you win. <laughs> That's awesome. So your newest book, um, Uniquely You, drops in just a couple weeks. We're just so excited weeks. for you. Um, at this recording, Ron has his big party tonight, too. So I do. Yeah, our big lunch party. parties tonight. So the book launches on May 20th? 21st. 21st is what Amazon was telling me. Yeah, so. May 21st. So we're, <laughs> I, have to get my, I have to get my copy. It's very, um, yeah, it's very exciting. We're excited for you. Um, so what can you tell us about the book? So um, the book was uh, uniquely you is um, 
I can, here I can show you a picture, Yay! but nobody else can see. <laughs> it's got an orange on it. Yeah, so uniquely you uh, subtitle transform your organization by becoming the leader only you can be. Um, the we live in a world where Instagram and people's fake lives, their highlight reels have become the measure by which a lot of us measure ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so what we're ending up with is people are so unhappy because guess what? They're not a very good Kim Kardashian. They're not a very good, depending on your age, John Maxwell or anybody else out there that you're trying to copy or you're looking at their life thinking that's what success looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most people that we work with and over the course of the year, there'll be between six and 8,000 people who will go through one of our coaching um, or, or conferences. And the vast majority of them, we ask what we call the Olivia Pope question. So if you watch the TV show Scandal, Olivia Pope is the main character. And in the early shows, she always asks the same question. What do you want? What do you want? Mm -hmm. And nobody could ever tell her the answer. And most leaders find themselves in that place, particularly young leaders. They don't know what they want. So they see what's on Instagram or they see you know, what the world is out there. They see highlight reels of people's success. And, um, and they think, well, that, that must be easy. That's what I want. Well, when you get it, you realize, oh, this, I don't want this at all. I'm unhappy. So being a bad fake of somebody else is the worst way to live your life. Um, you know, I believe we're all empowered with greatness in us. We all have the ability to succeed, but most of us um, don't do it because we're scared, because we're afraid if we admit that we're not perfect, that people won't like us, so they won't buy our product, or they won't do business with us, when in fact, it is those unique things that make us desirable and and um, that people want to be around us. So, you know, the book is about stories that relate to kind of those things in my own life about, you know, uh, I spent the first 40 years of my life terrified that people would find out that, you know, I had a learning disability, that I'm dyslexic. Now, I was terrified because my father was dyslexic and uh, he never learned to read and write and it cost him his life. When I was four, he was killed in an industrial accident. And I was terrified and he quit school because they put him in a special education class and um, with, with kids that were severely developmentally disabled. And he was, he was done, he walked out of school and I was terrified that I would be somehow marginalized. I was terrified that people would find out, you know, that I always had free lunch growing up in school. And so, and it wasn't until I was 40 that the fear was becoming so debilitating that I either had a choice to just buy into it and sit on the sidelines or it not acknowledge where I came from. And, and I was thriving successfully. Mm -hmm. And I decided I was just gonna be transparent. I was tired of hiding. And once I became authentically, uniquely me, um, that's when success compounded at levels that um, I was unimaginable. 
So, you know, I want that for everyone. And, and so it really is about telling the stories that we hope uh, helps particularly um, millennials. Cause we get lot, I get lots of emails and texts, but I get more texts than, uh, than anything from millennials, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Asking, um, you know, it's really in two categories. It's the young woman who got great grades. She got, she thought she got the job of her dreams right out of college. She gets there and she's treated like a second class citizen and she doesn't know what to do about it and is, doesn't have a mentor, doesn't know how to be a strong woman without, um, you know, in a world dominated by, you know, in a lot of cases still, you know, kind of fraternity boy mentality. Mm -hmm. Or it's the 30-year-old guy who just had his first or second child who is saying, I don't want to be my dad. I don't want to, I don't want to work 70 hours a week and never see my kids. I want to go home at five. I want to coach their sports. Um, but I don't know, I don't see that in my world. How do I do those things? So this book is is really written for them and then written for the 50-year-old who wants to support those two but has no idea what the rules are today and how to um, change themselves so they can accelerate the next generation. I love it. Um, so in your book, you discuss how to find your unique leadership vibe. Um, what are some practical steps to finding that vibe? I think part of it is... Um, is knowing what you want and so knowing what makes gonna make you happy mm -hmm. you know the uh, uh i i was just i spoke to a pretty large gathering of psychologists psychiatrists uh, mental health professionals and um and so afterwards i asked to meet with a group of them and said uh, you know i hear about that we got more antidepressants being prescribed mm -hmm. today than ever before why why are people so anxious? Why are they so depressed? Mm -hmm. And they said, it's nobody knows that they want, so they're not happy. Everybody wants to be happy, but nobody knows what happiness looks like. So I think that's the first thing is you've got to know, and it doesn't have to be forever, mm -mm. but it, what's happiness look like in the next three years? What is the things that are going to bring you joy, real joy? It can't be taken away from you. So you got to understand that. You've also got to um, put yourself in an environment that um, allows you to be uniquely you. And um, there are, it, it is. And, and you know, we t it's easier today than it has ever been in our nation's history to quit a job and get another job. We have all-time low unemployment in every sector. And, um, and all across the country, places are thriving. So there's very few places that aren't thriving. So there's never been a better time to define, here's the environment I want to live in. Here's the ideal job. Here's, you know, here's what, um, you know, where the, the uh, hike and bike trails that are important to me. Here's the schools that are important to me. Here's the vibe I want in my life. Mm -hmm. And curating that for yourself. Don't You're either going to be a victim or a victor of change. And only you get to decide that. I love that. Only, only you have that power. So deciding that is critical uh, 
respect for lifting yourself up on this journey. And it isn't permanent. You can do something today and do it for three years and go, okay, now my next thing is, I mean, you change your computer every three years. You change, you know, our TVs are getting changed. Most people are, yeah, their phones, people are changing their houses, you know, every three or five years. Nobody plans to own their house until the mortgage gets paid off. But we're not doing that with our own life and curating what's important to us. And then I think the other kind of thing is make sure you're spending your life with people that make you better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that it, that's hard, but it may be the single most important thing you can do. And that means in your work life, your family, your um, you know extended family, the, your social surroundings. You know, my grandfather, um, who was the male influence of my life, uh, as I would walk out the door, every time he would say, remember, stupid sticks. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, don't put yourself around these in these situations where, you know, where you're going to get, you know, sideways where bad things can happen. And as leaders building our own life, we have to remember good and bad sticks. Mm-hmm. You want great things, you got to put yourself in an environment and around people who are gonna make you great. And if you want bad things to happen, put you around, go hang out with Eeyore, because bad <laughs> things always happen to Eeyore. Tigger never has a bad day. No. So go surround yourself with Tiggers. Stupid sticks, I need to start <laughs> saying this too. Yeah, every time, you, every time your kids go out the door, stupid <laughs> sticks. I like that a little better than, be kind, be yeah. kind today. <laughs> yeah. Your job is to be kind. Yeah. No. Uh, Yep, I'm going to start saying stupid things. (laughs) I have an 11-year-old, so... Well, he turns a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of stickiness coming. (sighs) Middle school. (laughs) A lot of stupid in middle school. Yeah. All right, Ron. Well, where is the easiest way for people to find you? Uh, Ronkitchens.com is the um, easy way. Or, you know, for the new book, it's uniquelyyoubook.com. Yes. Um, but yeah, ronkitchens.com. You'll always be able to get me. If you buy a copy of the book, my cell number's on, in the very back. And you can call me. <laughs> You're great. I, uh, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I, I have a, a cousin, my wife's cousin, actually, who's a Broadway actor. Mm-hmm. And he was trying out for a play. And he came dressed as a character, which is an Irish cop. And uh, the play was Our Town. Mm-hmm. And so he got that role. Well, then the casting director said, you know, Mel Brooks is doing a, a new movie and, um, and he, needs, he needs an Irish cop in the movie. You should go try out for it. And take your costume with you. So Tim, our cousin, goes in, goes for the interview and gets in there and he comes in in the role of this Irish cop and, you know, a New York City Irish cop and He's going through the whole thing and he's pretending to arrest Mel Brooks and, and Mel Brooks says, okay, stop. You have the role. You know why you got the role? Because if you're going to ring the bell, you ring the bell. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's what we tell people. If you're going to go all in, go all in. So I, uh, I want to spend the, you know, the next 20 years of my life lifting up and supporting leaders and uh, that means I got to give them my phone number. So I love it. Call I love and it. text me. 
Okay, so final question for you. Um, what is your one biggest piece of advice um, that you would give an emerging or new leader? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> lead with um, vulnerability. Okay. It's, it's scary. Um, it, it's scary to not admit you're perfect. And middle school, as you just said, conditions us to um to avoid mean people and everybody seems to have hormones and be a mean <laughs> kid in middle school but that shouldn't condition our lives that right. should be who we are the most if you think of the most successful people you know really successful not not crazy internet fake successful <laughs> people whose lives you go yeah i'd like to i would like to have them come over to my house for dinner mm -hmm. Um, those are people who lead with vulnerability, who lead with their passion, who um, you really know who they are and aren't trying to be some fake version that they saw in, you know, a, a Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, if you could just do that, you're going to find that people will surround you and will help you in, to achieve dreams you didn't know you had. But if you act, if you're a fake knockoff version of yourself, um, nobody spends much time or effort um, polishing a fake Gucci bag. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Or, you know, polishing a turd. Is that? Is That's it. it. I was trying to clean it up. Yeah. That's fine. You can say whatever you want on this podcast. <laughs> uh, I want people to be them. So, again. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ron. We are really excited for the book launch for you and excited to have had you on the podcast. We appreciate Awesome. You. We're excited to have to be here and thanks for doing this. We really yeah. appreciate you. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast to be inspiring, helpful, and entertaining, please like and subscribe. This helps us grow the community and reach more people. If you are interested in learning more about this episode's guests or accessing any of the books or other resources mentioned in this episode, be sure to check out the description box below. Until next time, be abundant.